I'm Jennifer Morrison, and you're listening to The Bookshelf, where I talk with the authors I love about the books I love. So today's interview is with Elaine Shea Chow. She's a Taiwanese-American writer from California, and her debut novel, Disorientation, is a New York Times Editor's Choice book, an NPR Best Book of 2022, a VCU Cable First Novelist Shortlist nominee, and a New York Public Library Young Lions finalist. Elaine has had numerous awards. She's been published all over the place in Guernica, Black Warrior Review, Tin House Online, The Atlantic, and elsewhere. She's a recipient of the 2023 Fred R. Brown Literary award. She's been a workshop instructor. She's taught fiction for NYU and numerous other universities. And her multi-genre short story collection, Where Are You Really From, is forthcoming from Penguin Press. She is so accomplished. She's also about to turn disorientation into a film. It's been optioned by some big Hollywood folks. In this interview, we get to talk about her experience with Hollywood versus novel writing. Elaine is very well-rounded. She is passionate. She is lovely to chat with and has a very unique perspective on the world. And today we're talking about the novel Disorientation, where a 29-year-old PhD student named Ingrid Yang is desperate to finish her dissertation. She accidentally stumbles upon a curious note in the archives when she's doing research, and it starts a whole snowball effect of crazy adventures. Ingrid is in much deeper than she thinks when she goes on these adventures. Her clumsy exploits unravel, and this note's message that she finds has explosive discoveries. It upends her entire life and the lives of those around her. She goes on a roller coaster of mis- and misadventures from book burnings and over-the-top drug hallucinations to hot-button protests and yellow peril and 2.0 propaganda. As the events unfold, Ingrid instigates so many things and everything starts spiraling and she ends up having to confront her very sticky relationship with white men and white institutions and most of all, herself. I could not put this book down. I know I say that about most of the books that are on the book club list because I'm choosing so few, but it really is excellent. And even in my review, I said something like, I know most books aren't for everyone, but this book is for a lot of someone's. And I really do believe that's true. Here's our interview. Elaine Shea Chow, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I'm so happy to be here with you. I usually get to meet all of the Young Lions finalists at the awards, and I was bummed that I couldn't be there this year. How was your experience at these awards? Did you have a good time? Oh, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, that building is so beautiful, and the way it was presented, it was like a dance party in this really regal, you know, that lobby. So it was so cool to be able to experience that, and the entire ceremony was so lovely. Everyone at NYPL was so kind, and Ethan. Hawk was there and yeah that was very cool and yeah it was magical it really was yeah it's such an amazing event that library just never stops stunning me every time I walk in I feel my breath taken away yeah same and the history of all of it they've given me tours and things where they're telling you like this was flown here from France and this was flown here from Italy and this stone was dug up you know you're like what what Well, I love your book, Disorientation. I think a lot of people love your book, Disorientation. It's something that I think is so hard to achieve, which is I was laughing out loud, but also crying at times, which I think is such a cool way to reach the readership. I I wanted to start by asking you actually about your grandma, because I realized there's this beautiful inscription to her at the beginning to Shay. Is it, how do you pronounce it? Say Shay Shu Hua? Is that Um, right? Shay Shou Hua. Shay Shou Hua. (laughs) And it says, who hid in the mountains eating raw cabbage and survived the bombs. Holy cow. Tell me about her. Oh my God. I'm so happy you asked this question. I actually think I've never talked about this. Really? Yeah. In an interview or anything. So it's so nice that I get to talk about my dear grandma who has since passed away, but she was such a strong woman. Yeah. So when she was only five or six years old, uh, well, World War II (laughs) happened. Wow. And uh, she was living in this small village in China, and there were bombs all the time. And also soldiers 
coming in to take the woman. Oh, she God. didn't explicitly what, you, you know, but she just kept telling me like, you're too young to understand. It was horrible what they did to them. And I was like, oh, I know what, it, what they did, grandma. But her and her older sister luckily evaded that. But then there would be these like sirens alerting the village when a bomb was going to hit or, you know, had hit. And so there's a shelter. Mm. I think could fit something like 200 people. So normally her and her sister would run to the shelter, but her sister actually tripped and fell. Something happened where she hurt herself and they could no longer go. So they ran, I guess, to nearby mountains and and they would hide inside them for days and there was nothing to eat. Um, I'm not even sure if cabbage is the exact translation, but just like what they thought was edible plants around them. Oh my Um, God. And what is so incredible is that day of the bombing, of this particular bombing, the shelter was bombed. It was a direct hit. I mean, it was awful. It was terrible. You know, everyone died. And so sometimes when I think about it, I'm like, I can't believe I'm alive. Like, yeah, that I'm alive, you know, because not only did she survive that to then basically escape to Taiwan, she had to also travel across China. I think she traveled a lot on foot, actually, to figure out these like difficult ways to just travel so many miles. So I'm so grateful to her. And and of course, other members of my family have survived difficultly. Yeah. (laughs) So is this your grandmother on your mom's side or your dad's side? My dad's side. And then this is where your Taiwanese roots come from because she eventually made it to Taiwan and that's... Exactly, yeah. Wow. So to Taiwan with my grandpa on my dad's side. So they had met in China and then, yeah, my dad was born in Taiwan and my mom is also was also born in Taiwan. So oh my gosh, wow. It is so wild <laughs> when you think about what it takes for any one of us to exist, but something like that is like really next level. <laughs> I mean, as a little kid to have had this instinct to not go in the bomb shelter and then be able to survive, you know, you look at a little kid and you, you don't think, oh yeah, send that kid into the mountains and they'll find a way to survive. Like, oh my God, it's incredible. Really incredible. And so then when did your family come from Taiwan to America? My dad immigrated in the 70s, I believe. Yeah, his way in basically was through studying. So he studied physics. And yeah, that's when he came over. So there's pictures of him like looking very cool and, you know, bell bottoms and... (laughs) Like the aviator glasses and like, who were you, dad? But yeah, that's when he came. And it's such a funny thing because I love Taiwan so much. And sometimes I'm like, would I have been happier if I had Oh, wow. No, I mean, it's a very valid question, especially with a lot of the subjects that you're touching on in disorientation. I mean, obviously it is not an easy path to be an Asian in America. I don't think it ever has been, and it certainly isn't right now. And I feel like, again, that's why I think it's such an incredible thing that you accomplished with how much joy and humor is in a book that also has an incredible amount of painful subject matter and rage. It's interesting because like I know that you've written a lot about rage and the book sort of has that word connected to it a lot. It's interesting because as I read it, I think because your your heart is so open and so joyful and so optimistic, I think. I mean, I don't know you. I'm just meeting you now. But my take on it is that from your writing, I thought, oh, I wonder if, if the same book had been written by a man, would people equate the word rage with it? You know what I'm saying? Like, I just feel like there's a double standard of when rage becomes the word for something when it's a woman writing versus when it's a man writing. And when I looked back at my review, compared to some of the things I was reading, I was like, oh, I didn't really mention rage because it feels so earned. It just feels like, well, Mm -hmm. yeah, you would be angry and frustrated when all of these things are happening. Does that resonate? Or am I just imagining that there's that double standard? No, totally. Yeah, yeah. There's something I think there's even a term that people use a lot, right? Like female rage is this very specific phenomenon, I suppose. But I felt a lot of rage when I was writing it and mm-hmm. or I, why I felt motivated to write it. But then I think so much of the act of writing it was joyful for me. And yeah, yeah what you said means a lot to me that there is an optimism in it because, you know, how else are you going to wake up and care and like wake yeah. up the next day? And then wake up, you know, I think it, it's also like a metaphor for writing. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, same, yeah. But I mean, it's right. I, I felt mm -hmm. like, listen, I'm a privileged white person in America. So my experience of life is very different than yours or anyone who's Asian in America. But I felt like it was so clear in a way that I don't think it's ever been clear to me that daily, like the death of a thousand cuts kind of feel, you know, where it's just like every little example that you're not hitting us over the head with it. It's just the truth of Ingrid's experience, which is like, you know, the fact that she was accused of plagiarizing a book report when she was a kid because it was possibly too articulate. I was like, no one would have said that to a white kid. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was like, and, and it's that so happened to me twice in high school. I Come on. Come I was accused on. of plagiarism for, on no grounds. Like and the then, ground with nothing that they could point to, right? Like they're like, yeah. well, I don't know what you plagiarized, but you must have plagiarized. Yeah. It's like, I think about, I'm like, was it because of the way I look or was it sort of how I presented in high school? I mm. had my valley girl phase. And so, so oh, I'm that's like, amazing. They, they think I was just, they were like, well, based on how you dress and and talk like you know in, in that valley girl way that we don't think you could have or maybe it was a mix you know that's the thing is you'll never know but I think it is funny that sometimes and I've heard this from other friends the stereotype of like well if you're Asian you just must be seen as really smart but it's funny it's like maybe for certain subjects but like I kept getting accused for English essays and history papers that is so uh, crazy. Like math and science, yes. But I was always so bad at math and science. Oh, man. I mean, that's just one example of a thousand things that are highlighted in the book, moments in the book that I was just like, I can't imagine dealing with that all day, every day, and trying to imagine the way that would impact my sense of self or how I viewed the world, you know, and it, it was so cool to watch Ingrid go from where she starts in the novel, which is so impacted by all of that, you know, all of the stuff that's been put on her and all of the expectations and those things that have been sort of fetishized and the way that she kind of just survived all of it and was in a way accepting all of it and then unravels and like takes apart all of these things that have been put upon her to get to the end of the novel where she's in a very different place. I mean, in a way, she's at a new beginning at the end, but it's incredible to go through that journey with her. And then also to feel like all the people around her have their own versions of those things. You were mentioning the way you dressed in high school. I feel like Ingrid and the way that she's talking about, like she was buying new brooches for her professor years that were coming or something like it. It was like she was going to dress the part a little bit the same way like Eunice later when they're going in to break into John Smith's house, like she's dressed like a robber or something. You know, it's like <laughs> these roles that everybody's trying on as they're getting through their sense of self, but it's manifesting in their clothing in some way, which I thought was so interesting. It was such a cool yeah. sort of physicalization of their internal lives. Oh my God, you're also the first person who's noticed that or mentioned really? that. <laughs> but I think that's, and this is like a theme that I think emerged maybe as I was close to finishing, but the whole, yeah, what is identity, right? And yeah. how do we fabricate? fabricate identity all the time try it on take it off yeah but you're right like clothes they factor into that and sort of like how we read each other right so Ingrid doesn't know Vivian really at all like they've never really talked but based on how she dresses yep the makeup and her hair she's like you're this type of person yeah um and the schoolgirl outfit you know that's like all there's so much symbolism to that outfit totally and it's true it's something maybe we don't notice as much like in books but now that I'm in the screenwriting space and everything it's such a big part of building characters is how do you visually see them and it tells you so much yeah about you know how we're supposed to read this character um, but thank you for noticing that oh yeah I mean I was about halfway through the novel when I looked back at the cover you know, usually I read and I'm not really thinking much of the cover, usually because covers don't really say much for any given book, except for I did read your essay that was hilarious about like what's allowed on Asian book oh. covers or something. I was like, oh my God, what a great satire of <laughs> the truth of this situation. But then I looked back and I was like, this is an incredibly accurate book cover. I mean, for anyone who's <laughs> looking, you can see. And then for anyone listening, it's like 
I don't know, all these pieces of her life. It's the school uniform, it's the shoes, it's the pills, it's the books, it's her pen, it's a broken vase, it's the pink room, you know, I like the sky outside and that's sort of like the unknown outside this door. Did you get to pick this cover? Because I feel like it's such an excellent cover. Oh, thank you. Thank you so, so much. Um, I mean, I owe it all to the artist, Ilya Moraski and Sam Copeland, who also helped build the design. So it, it was, like a shot in the dark it was honestly really hard <laughs> to make it happen um to put it simply because Aaliyah I had been following her work uh online her tag her her name oh, her, is your yes <laughs> A-L-E-I-A for anyone who's interested in, in checking out her work I mean she's so talented so she she builds dioramas mm. for snails what she has pet snails yeah she's incredible and her mind is so wacky and imaginative and her art is surreal and playful and sort of tongue-in-cheek and it was everything that I wanted the cover to be but of course she you know had not designed a book cover before so that was like a whole long road but I believed in her from the start and I just knew with all my heart like this is the artist for it yeah. Um, and she pulled it together in a really short amount of time and she put so much love and care into it. So, you know, everything was made by hand except for some of the things like the vase she had to order. And then she smashed it in like a, like a vice, like she had to put in this metal vice. Oh, wow. Um, the schoolgirl outfit she sewed from scratch by what? hand. The bed uh is made from cardboard and it's it's wrapped in fabric the the waffle dogs are made from polymer clay and she sent them to me I actually have them oh and the she's yeah she's I mean it is a labor of love I had no idea this was like an actual diorama I thought this was some sort of digital creation that's yeah, incredible but it's a it's a photo the cover is actually a photo and if you turn the camera at a certain angle um, you'll see these tiny wires holding up the objects. Oh, wow. Yeah, posted, I think she posted it like on her Instagram. One of the posts shows. I'll have to go look that, for that. That's yeah. incredible. <laughs> I Has know, a snail lived in your room? Has a snail lived in this room? I don't think she put a snail in there. <laughs> um, wow, that's so cool. As many of you know, I am obsessed with Frida Salvador shoes, and I am so excited to say that this episode is brought to you by Frida Salvador. Style is a part of all of us. It's the first way we express ourselves in the morning, and it's the first impression we give to those around us. But finding that right piece that's both comfortable and expresses your individual style takes time. And that's why I wanted to introduce you to my favorite brand, Frida Salvador, designed in California by my friends Christina and Megan. They are inspired by individual style, and they are on a mission to build community from the ground up. I cannot tell you how many times when I'm wearing these shoes, someone comes up to me and goes, look, I'm wearing them too. Aren't they so amazing? Isn't it incredible how comfortable they are? This shoe really has a community around it. They are the coolest shoes and accessories handcrafted by artisans in Spain and El Salvador with the highest quality Italian leathers they can find. I love these styles because they are classic, but reimagined with statement details. And I also trust Frida to deliver impeccably made pieces that will be in my closet forever. I love them. I wear them almost every day. I highly recommend you check out their latest collection and I will give you 15% off with my code Jen's Bookshelf. Just visit FridaSalvador.com for 15% off with the code Jen's Bookshelf. That's amazing. Yeah. And I, that's amazing that they let you choose the artist. I, you know, I don't know how any of this works. You know, I'm, I'm a lover of books, but I don't completely know, except for the conversations I've gotten to have with authors, you know, about their experience with publishing and the process and all that stuff. But how were you able to choose your own artist and and put that in motion was that something that the publisher was supportive of or was that something you had to really fight for hmm. <laughs> I think oh you can say we can pass if you want to plead the fifth on this one you don't have to answer I understand if I mean, it's complicated maybe this is like the after hours with, Got it. with you and I Jen but Got it. <laughs> You know, I think, yeah, it, it was, it was just, I had to have unwavering faith. And at one point it just felt very like tenuous, but I'm, I'm really thankful that in the end, everything worked out and the imprint, I mean, loves it and great, and, yeah, really does love the cover. So in the end. Yes, it all worked out. 
That's amazing. And then I know I'm kind of jumping back a little bit. You were talking about how you're in screenplay land now with this because you sold this to a couple of different oh, no companies. Worries. It's Adam McKay's company and Malala's company. Yeah, Is that right? Yeah, yeah and they so, optioned it. Okay. And so how did that come about? Like, does Adam McKay just call you up or like what happened? <laughs> oh, if only it were that soon. <laughs> Well, what happened was so more than a year before the novel came out, I think it was like January, 2021. Yeah. So a little bit before, over a year before yeah. the novel actually came out, um, my literary agents one day sent me an email saying, oh, this TV and film manager, Tara Tominsky, really loves your book and wants to like represent you. And I was like, what? <laughs> film and TV? Like I just... In my head, because I had never gone through this before, I just assumed the book has to come out first. You like, think, I don't yeah. Think we didn't have the cover yet. We didn't have arcs. But there's this whole world of book scouts and people, they're TV and film managers, but they specialize in uh, book to screen adaptation. Mm -hmm. So their whole thing is to get manuscripts when they're announced on like publishers marketplace. <laughs> Oh, wow. So that's how I think she initially found the book. And then when it had gone through, I guess, not even all the edits, but like enough edits, they were like, they sent it to her. And so we had a call. And yeah, she was just like, I want to, you know, take this out, like set you wow. up on meetings. And I was like, whoa. And <laughs> so at that point, I'd been like secretly teaching myself screenwriting. And it, I guess secretly because yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. And it felt almost embarrassing to like announce learning something from scratch and, and flailing and not really knowing what I was doing. But I told her I, I've written this this feature. Would you check it out? And she was like, you know, this is not half bad for like your first oh, wow. script for a novelist, like turning to this craft. Like, I think, um, you know, we can fight for you to adapt it. So normally... The ideal, not even the ideal, but the easier process is the author wants nothing to do with adapting it and will just maybe take like an executive producer credit yeah. and just hands it off, right? Okay. It's like someone else adapt it and write it. I'm not a screenwriter, but because I loved what I was learning, like I had fallen in love with this new form. I was like, I really want to try it and I, and I think I can do it. And that made the process harder because a lot of production companies were like, well, if she's going to adapt it, like, no. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so the ones that stuck around really were the ones who believed in me enough, yeah. even though there was literally zero proof at that time, because that feature I wrote was not like ready to be, you know, really sent out or anything. But yeah, so those two companies, Adam McKay's Hyper Object and then Malala's Extracurricular were two of the ones who believed in me. So they didn't reach out, you know, it was my manager pitching them and then setting up meetings for me. So I had to learn how to pitch yep. in a very short amount of time. I had to learn. Yeah, it was like a crash course in what's a pitch doc, what goes in a pitch doc, how do you talk about this story as a Yeah, movie? and how did you do that? Because honestly, listen, I have to pitch as a director all the time, which is different than having to pitch as a writer. I've also been a director listening to writers pitch. I'm always curious because all I know is what I did on my own when I was clueless to try to figure out what to right. do. Like, where did you turn to even figure out what to do with a pitch document? Well, luckily, Tara, like, led me through it all like she sent me a bunch of real pitch docs okay um some of them had been are like were internal docs from her clients or clients at her company and then some of them were the really famous ones that everyone on the internet has seen so you know like the stranger things mm. formerly montauk that pitch deck more like you know with the visual that's like it was such a powerful example of building the world so clearly and specifically uh the Fargo pitch doc Freaks and Geeks New Girls uh, yeah, there's a few that are just on the internet because a lot of them you can't access and yeah. you, you aren't going to release them. But by the way, I'm going to go look up all of these now. I've never seen any of them. I was like, this is great. What a great idea. Yeah. Oh yeah. The Fargo one is really cool too. It has a fascinating story 
arc, like season arc, that's a triangle. So it's, I've never seen anything like it. That's um, cool. Uh, but she sent me all that and like, she sent me like Netflix has put together a how to pitch document. And I was looking just online, you know, like nofilmschool.com and like Studio Binder, like a few of these websites, they have tons of information out there. And I was just like, okay, this is what it looks like. I've seen the example. And now I'm, I basically have to learn how to fill it in. And then yeah. I would send it to Tara and she would give me notes and we'd go like back and forth. And I think I did a practice pitch with her, you know, so sure. just straight like 20 minutes, I just talk. And so she let me practice and, and then it was trial and error, right? Like the first few times I did it, you learn how to be more conversational and not just be like, okay. And so then the log line is this, and then the genre is, let this. me tell you, not <laughs> everyone learns how to be more conversational. I have definitely, I've definitely been on those pitches. Like I've been attached as a director to projects where I'm like waiting for the writer to pitch. And I'm like, Oh God, Oh God, we really are just going to read this whole document. Uh, like... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and I'm doing so my best acting as I'm watching going like, Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Trying not to like zone out. Yeah, exactly. It's hard. It's so hard because yeah. it's like to meet that precious timeline of like the 20 minutes you yeah. you kind of have to like plan it out. If you go off the cuff, you end up talking for like either 10 minutes or an hour or something. Well, I guess people wouldn't mind 10 minutes, you know? But, um, <laughs> sure. So that's how I learned. Wow. Um, that's amazing. It's oh, a, such a sink or swim situation, huh? It's like, you just kind of figure it out. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of overlaps, you know, with just storytelling. Yeah. But I, I, what I loved about even just creating the pitch doc was a kind of zoomed out structure that I just had never been taught or really, yeah, it's not really like a thing so much in fiction writing and like the workshops I had taken and I, I did an MFA. So I'm actually teaching a class for Tin House that's like for fiction writers who are struggling with structure, like big huh. pictures, or just like, how do you build out this tiny idea you have? Yeah. And part of it is we're going to create a pitch doc together and like a beachy because all of that just helps me with storytelling in general. I feel like I can't really go back to how I thought of storytelling before. How cool. I yeah. Just, I have these sort of like methods and you know you can break the mold of course but I feel like it's such a great starting point to yeah. be like why would I choose these and what tone would it create as the overall yeah and creating. so are you developing disorientation as a film or as a show as, as a, a film as a film because yeah. I yeah. feel like there's so much in it I was like I was not surprised at all that you had made a deal to have this made because I was like, it's so active, which mm. is so rare. I feel like for fiction, at least <laughs> these days, um, I, I mean, listen, I love me some very internal fiction. Don't get me wrong. I'm all about it, but it was this great balance. Cause I felt very inside of Ingrid's mind and I felt very inside of her experience and it did feel internal in that way, but so much happens. I mean, I was curious if you had outlined it because I feel like, I don't know, I guess like this story in someone else's hands, maybe one big turn would have happened in the whole book. And I feel like, oh. you know what I'm saying? Like you were so able to manage so many big twists and turns of, physical events that happen that feel very visual is that mm -hmm. something that you set out to do or was it just naturally evolving or did you outline it or what was that process for you in terms of I mean she finds one little note in the book yeah and that <laughs> sets this whole thing in motion but that sets in motion like protests and people's <laughs> lives changing and her yeah. eventual like not marrying Stephen or Stefan. Right. I never sure when it's PH if it's Stephen or Stefan. Oh, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> and Michael's life changing. And you know, I mean it's it's <laughs> literally like yeah. they break in at one point. I'm like, oh my God, now they're breaking in and now this <laughs> John Smith isn't who he said he was and Michael's involved. And I was like, it's just <laughs> I was like, I couldn't even keep a list of these big plot points. I was like, this is there's so so much going on, which is so, so captivating when you're reading and so exciting. Because like I said, so often you're like, you read a novel where it's one thought that takes 300 pages, you know, and this was like just jam packed with action. So tell me about that process. Oh, oh great. Oh, oh thank you. Um, <laughs> well, I realized my thing as a writer, a sort of neuroticism I have, you know, all writers are neurotic, but one of mine is I'm like deathly afraid of boring. Mm. And I didn't realize that until, you know, you start to see patterns in 
work and how I would feel this anxiety of like, am I boring the reader? And I guess like, as me as a reader, I tend to look for turns and and twists and you kind of want to write the book that you want to read in a way. Sure. So I, I had a lot of fun constantly asking myself, what if? Like I kept being afraid that I wasn't examining a situation or a character or, you know, character's choice fully enough. Yeah. Like when they had made a choice, I, I feel like I would sort of try to like turn it over and over in my head to go, what's like the flip side of that? Or, or what if they then felt forced to do that? Or I, I really tried to keep pushing sort of every character or storyline until its end, right? Like, yeah. like it, there were ways that I could keep pushing it. I, and how it happened, I think, so I wrote like three separate versions of the novel <laughs> from scratch. What? Yeah. And the first version, Ingrid is in her 50s. She's a professor. She's married to a congressman. She has two kids. <laughs> so I scrapped almost everything that happened, except what stayed the same was always her relationship with her white partner, mm. what she has to examine there. And she always still makes this big discovery about Xiao and Chao, the poet. But yeah, it, it ended up not working. It was sort of like a multi-POV family drama kind of novel. And then second version, I was like, I've got to throw away everything besides Ingrid and write it from her first person perspective. So I wrote it wow. all in the first person. <laughs> and then she was, she was engaged, I think. No, no, she wasn't engaged. She just had a boyfriend who worked in tech. Mm. So do you remember that your face, but better app that like turns your face? <laughs> like into... a face tuning thing or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That, that you and Eunice date that like tech bro yes um, bad yeah he was originally josh and he was ingrid's boyfriend no way this is amazing this is like an alternate universe this is incredible uh, it, is. it is so weird to think about this other universe because it was you know there's there's like definitely like a kind of stereotype of like silicon valley type guys like you go to san francisco there's like a whole joke about you just see couples like ingrid and steven you know everywhere and, and so i was like of course her boyfriend would be like a techie and of course he'd be doing something terrible <laughs> But all the changes, I had to keep throwing things up in the air, yeah. right? And letting go and asking myself, like, well, if I let it go, like, what else is under there? And if I test myself, I try to push myself, like, what else can I find? I think going through that just carried on. And all these, like, little ideas I had would manifest then finally in the third version, which is, like, the published version. Yeah. I think that is so brave. How did you know when it felt right? Was there like a feeling when you were like, okay, this third version, this is the thing that it's meant to be? Was there a different feeling about those, whatever it is, 70,000 or 100,000 words where you're just like, no, this feels like what it wants to be. Whereas like versions one and two, you're like, eh, something's not right. Totally. Yeah. And, and hearing, you know, what other people thought <laughs> makes sure. a big difference because the first version I mean, I had sent it to beta readers, my my dear beloved beta readers, and, and I got, you know, positive feedback and everything. But I told myself I would put it in a drawer for three months. Mm. I do recommend this to all readers. Put it in a drawer for three months. Yeah. See how you feel about it. I read it again and it was like, I hate this. Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> the, the biggest issue was it wasn't my voice. That first version, I was so compelled and inspired by Paul Beatty's The Sellout. So I had read that novel pretty recently, right before I started yeah. writing, writing, because even though I had planned and outlined before, I didn't start actually writing until several months after that. And I think his voice and that the voice of that narrator that's very knowing and, and kind of snarky, you know, that mm. I just loved. I was trying to be Paul Beatty and, and there's only one, listen, there's only yeah. one. So, so I think that's why when I took it out after three months and you kind of out of the the haze of frantically writing all the time. You can't yes. get out of your head, get out of your work. I was like, this isn't me. This is me trying to sound like someone else who I admire a lot, but it's not me. 
I'm so excited to share that our podcast is brought to you in partnership with Seed. As many of you know, I'm a huge advocate of this incredible company and their DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic, which I have taken every day for years. DSO-1 is a two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic formulated with 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains for whole body benefits, including gut, skin, and heart health. I started taking Seed daily because I love how seriously they are about their science. It's formulated based on robust clinical and mechanistic research with probiotic strains and super good news, there's no refrigeration necessary. Seed's patented capsule and capsule design safeguards probiotics through digestion for delivery of an average of 100% of their starting dose to your colon. I also love Seed's commitment to environmental health. They have developed probiotics for honeybees, coral reefs, and have created new standards and sustainable packaging. Your first month of Seed includes a refillable glass jar and complimentary vial for on the go, and refills arrive each month in a compostable bio pouch. For our listeners, Seed is offering 25% off your first order. Go to seed.com slash Jen's Bookshelf. Use code Jen's Bookshelf for 25% off your first order of Seed. That's so interesting too. It just makes (laughs) me think about when you, there's one section where you put one of the poems and then you put Ingrid's assessment notes of the poem. And it is very different writing than the rest of the book. And it's very like flowery. And I had to look up almost every word. I was like, the vocabulary that Ingrid has is incredible. But it was so not indulgent. I don't know what the word is for it, but it was trying really hard to be something that maybe she Mm, wasn't. And so it's interesting that you're saying that because I feel like that manifests itself in Ingrid a little bit in terms of like her way that she writes about writing compared to how... You write, you know what I mean? Yeah, academic writing, my take (laughs) is that it's like the one realm of writing where the more confusing and obscure and, you know, really in a a way clickish, right? Because it's not meant to be accessible. The more clear and accessible Mm. academic writing is, the more it's seen as a failure. That is bizarre. And yeah, in another life, I was studying for my PhD and I was writing a dissertation and academic writing was like pulling teeth because no one thinks or talks like that, you know, out in the real world. Yeah. this very weird specific kind of writing that is just yeah the more unclear you are the better it is seen <laughs> so that's crazy feeling that in that section yeah that's what sort of happened with like the first version and then with this the second version I had a thesis advisor Hari Kanjru wonderful writer who wrote White Tears he read it and told you know something I really needed to hear which was just this doesn't work in the first person because the whole novel is about what Ingrid doesn't see about herself oh wow right so if you're in the first person how would she then be like huh I now have this epiphany you know like yeah we sort of have to be able to see her in a way she can't Can't see see herself herself. yeah kind of comical you know and I I try to do it very lovingly even when she's being ridiculous (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's very loving. It's super oh, loving and so relatable. I mean, it's like even opening it and her procrastination with her dissertation. I was like, man, I so identify with like, my house is never cleaner than when I need to get something done that I'm avoiding. You right. know, it's like, I'm never more organized. It's incredible. Like uh, suddenly I, I will organize five years worth of photos on my own iPhoto, or I will clean the closet that I haven't wanted to clean, or the refrigerator has suddenly been emptied, organized and completely washed. You know, it's like, Exactly. Yeah, that's why first person didn't work. And then finally, I think I started writing this version and it felt a little bit like not really combining the two, but just because I tested out these other voices and tones that was like, I think this is it. And luckily, other readers were like, I think this is it too. And I was like, really? Okay, I'll keep going. That must be such a relief when people key into it with you. For me, I was like, oh, this kind of reminds me almost like a flea bag or something. Did you see flea bag? I love flea bag. <laughs> because but I'm now I'm realizing as you're saying this, because the way she wrote that show, it's like you get her internal life, but you also get perspective. You know what I mean? You're like she's commenting on herself just as much as she's in herself. And so I feel like that's, I think that's what I'm feeling is that you kind of gave the reader space to be able to like, look at her from a distance and see things Mm -hmm. she couldn't see for herself. Right, right. And then also be with her enough to be like relating to her and understanding her and with her and rooting for her. Yeah, 
yeah. Fleabag was so smart in that letting us in, I think, was necessary because that character, Fleabag, does some terrible things, right? Yeah. And it's so easy for like, oh, if you're a woman character who's flawed in the slightest, you're just called unlikable. Yeah, we're still (laughs) there. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, so how are we supposed to be real people if we can't have flaw? (laughs) But I think it was so smart that, like you said, she creates this balance of the internal. And it's not even like when she talks to you that she's being the most honest. Sometimes she's being the most honest when she's not talking to you. Yeah. Delicate play of like what I want you to know, but actually what you know, just on your own, because you're watching me even when I don't, you know, I'm not addressing you, I'm not looking at you. You're still there. Yeah. <laughs> and able to form your own judgments. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really admire Phoebe Waller Bridge as a writer. Well, I feel like you're you're you and your own separate voice from her, but I felt like the experience of watching that show is very much how I felt reading your novel because I felt like it was so alive and kind of sizzling and crackling with the same kind Ooh. of wit and joy and you know exploring dark edges of things in a way that was very relatable and lets you in and yeah so anyway that's my (laughs) (laughs) but that also makes me think about another thing that I feel like I can't remember which interview this was in but you were talking about how you know for so long in America we've really been tied to this three-act structure which is a very like eurocentric way of storytelling that was kind of rooted in the ancient Greek ideas of writing and that really jumped out at me when you were either talking about that or writing about that because I do live in the world of like having to pitch in Hollywood and man that three-act structure and what has to happen on page 11 and page 27 and page, you know, like we have such regimented things that like, you've got all these people who are super creative, who are trying to give people these new experiences creatively. And then you've got executives who are going, yeah, but did that happen on page 11? And did that happen on page 27? And you're like, oh man, I had to keep trying to fit my ideas into this box. And I realized I don't even know what another structure would be. Are there other sort of structures of storytelling that you have experienced or worked within or touched upon that are different than that three-act sort of Eurocentric structure? Me personally, no. I feel like if you sort of grew up in America or lots of parts of the West, like we sort of just think of story as beginning, middle, end, you know? So even though, yeah, if you get really specific into like the beats of a certain drama right or like a thriller versus a horror movie then it'll get even more specific of what needs to be set up in the beginning middle end but generally I feel like all stories have them I know there's this Japanese structure that I'm not even going to try to pronounce because I'll mess it up it starts with a K and it's set up tension and then resolution or set up conflict resolution and it's sometimes portrayed as like an alternative to western storytelling because it doesn't necessarily have like a climax necessarily but it's still beginning middle end and when it's out it's still charted out as kind of like that little long bump you know that rises and falls down so I'm like huh and then students will ask me about what alternative story structures are there and there's a book that I've I've been told about many times I really should read by now called meander spiral explode okay and I believe it's all about alternative storytelling that breaks out of these this sort of pattern that we're so used to But what we're talking about, it made me think of the movie After Hours. Have you seen that from like 1985? It's such a strange movie. And there's lots of strange movies out there and what we might call like art house. Oh yeah, Scorsese directed it. (laughs) So that's like... Oh, that that little filmmaker, that guy? Yeah. I think I've heard of him. (laughs) Exactly. Before he got really, really big, screenplay by Joseph Mignon. But check it out. Be interested to hear what you think, because it does not follow really any s- typical structure that I've seen in a in a movie. Maybe a little more like the French New Wave movies, kind yes. of, where it's like more meandering. But yeah, like all stories, it has a beginning, middle and end. Right. So it's like, do we ever really escape? Can yeah. you escape it? If, well, if- I mean, I feel like in a way, even disorientation is 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Variation on a theme, right? Where it's mm -hmm. like, yes, you have a beginning, middle and end. However, your end sort of feels like a beginning. So <laughs> it's like, which I'm really fascinated with. There's, I've been writing a screenplay where my goal has been that the end is the beginning. Ooh. And it's an interesting challenge because, you know, people read it and are expecting things to be a certain way because we have right. this set structure in our minds of what is right. like good and right. Maybe that's why when you spoke about the different structure stuff, it really grabbed me because I was like, yeah, but what's the variation of the theme? And, I, and it made me think about the end of your book. And I thought, well, the end really is the beginning for her. And so in a way, yes, there is a beginning and a middle and a beginning for you, as opposed to like a beginning, yeah. a middle and an end. Like, yes, the book comes to an end because you stopped writing words that were published in this novel. But really structurally, you did sort of set up a circle mm -hmm. as opposed to like a hill. <laughs> oh, I love that. I should you pretend that it. I Steal intentionally it. did that all along. <laughs> The, yeah, the structure of disorientation is actually a circle. If you didn't, um, have you seen this video on YouTube? It's Christopher Nolan being interviewed about Memento, and someone's oh, like, "No, but I want to watch oh. that." Okay. Yeah, someone's like, "So, can you talk about the structure, like how you plotted it out?" And he's like, "Oh, well, I think it might be impossible to do, but I suppose we could use a hairpin as like a, a visual." And so. It's well, it's incredible the way he described it. So oh, because it kind of goes like a, this way and back. Yeah, like a long U, like a U on its side. And he's uh... like, the movie starts in the middle. And this line on the bottom are the scenes, like the black and white scenes are the scenes in the past. And the scenes at the top are also like the scenes in the past, but like a different past. Oh my <laughs> and then, gosh. And then, the, and then the movie toggles between them. So it begins at the middle and it ends at the start. It's so it's it's wild, but that's literally what it is. It begins in the middle, ends at the start. Wow. So, I mean, if you're thinking about, yeah, this script, maybe like a hairpin, the idea of a hairpin or just some other shape. It is interesting though that you're saying it that way because it's like, it, it does help to think of things in a shape, right? Like it feels so overwhelming when you're just looking at this huge sort of body of words, right? And you're like, right, right. ah, what is this, you know? And when you start to think of a shape to things or even when you're talking about the triangular shape of Fargo, mm -hmm. you do start to feel the shape of the storytelling a little bit differently. Right. And that's really cool. That's a really cool way to look at it. I'm going to look up that interview. That's, I'm excited to watch that. <laughs> How wild. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, so the last thing I would ask you before my like very, very last question, which is what I ask everybody is just how did you tackle some of the bigger subject matters and keep such a great sense of humor? Because I feel like there was something very powerful about the way that it, I understood things differently. You know what I mean? Like I, I had never really thought about a lot of the issues that you brought up because I haven't had to live through them. You know, you kind of hear about certain things, but you don't necessarily live them. Right. And so I felt like you really give the reader through your novel an experience of you know those sort of like microaggressions on a daily basis what it might feel like to be fetishized in a way that it never occurred to me that the daily buildup of that and how that would press on someone how disturbing and upsetting it would be to watch an entire culture sort of I don't know just like erased in a way through like these yellow face experiences you know and you were able to tackle all of that but also keep the reader laughing and engaged and not feel like they were being preached to or you know what I'm saying I so what how did you approach that how did you manage to achieve that balance mm, oh thank you Jennifer gosh <laughs> I, like, I, I feel I, like I learned a lot I really did like I it was a total joy reading your novel and at the same time I felt like I got an incredible education I felt like you expanded my sense of empathy and understanding oh. for what the Asian American experience is and there's nothing I can do to fully ever understand it but you deeply expanded my empathy for someone walking that out that's incredible I mean that what you said it's was my hope and that I could could, I don't know what the word is exactly, but talk about things in a way that were meaningful to me. I didn't have space to hold for the audience. And I think it's a really common question, right? Like, who's your audience mm. and everything? I mean, it, I feel like everyone's your audience. Who's right. your audience? Who's asking that question? <laughs> when I was alone in my room, you know, writing all of these drafts and it, the audience was always me, you know, all I could write towards was like me. And so I think a lot of the issues that are heavier 
were issues that had just been like knocking around in my head. And I Mm. think a lot of writers, whether or not they keep this in the book or not, you know, you write to talk to yourself. Writing is like this long, weird mental psychological exercise in staring at your own thoughts and in the mirror, right? Because like, there's no one you're writing to in that computer screen. All that's there is you, right? So I feel like when I was grappling with these things, I would sometimes feel like, I don't like thinking about this. Like I have Mm. to work it out because this is an obsession of mine and I can't stop thinking about it or it bothers me, you know, it makes me upset. And yet I would like want an escape route for myself. So I think when I was writing it, I would build in these ways to like uh, release the pressure a little Mm. so that I would not have to necessarily like relive or just even if it wasn't reliving, but just sort of live in something traumatic. Yeah. Right. And during the period I was writing it, we had movies, for example, like Get Out. Like Get Out really changed the game, I think, in a lot of ways because it it was like we had seen, you know, movies that talked about the horrors of racism and, and the history of slavery that are like very realist, deeply, you know, difficult to watch. Yep. And get out was this kind of, it felt like the first, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. And there, there were predecessors. Well, I, th- you know, I mean, I think it was definitely the most famous example right. that achieved that. Yeah. Yeah. Of like turning it on its head and, and infusing it with this, you know, very dark humor and other examples of just films that use dark humor as this vehicle. You know, I think a lot of those storytellers, you're motivated to say something about the world that means you, right? Like, that's probably why you write, you know? Yeah. And I felt that when I was writing Disorientation, and yet personally, like me in my own life, like I don't necessarily want to just watch something super traumatic or something, you know? Yeah. Humor gives you distance. It gives you a sense of power, Mm. right? Because it's like, okay, maybe in real life, you would just get to be horrible and you would have the last laugh, right? But here in this space, you know, I can make this character look ridiculous. I have that power to laugh at him, right? What that quote of like, laughing at someone takes away their power, you know? So I think that is maybe why a lot of creators who are invested in creation towards social change lean towards dark humor. That makes a lot of sense. I'd never thought about it that way, but that really does make sense. It's a way to invite the audience in and give them a chance to have the distance to decide how they're going to interact with it. But at the same time, it does disempower the people that are doing the bad things, you know, and disempowers the people that are causing the trauma. And yeah, that's really powerful. Um, So like I said, I could talk to you forever. I have post-its all over my desk of questions for you. But my last question, and this is just what I kind of ask everybody at the end is just, is there a piece of advice that you had been given at some point? It doesn't have to be about writing, but whether it's about writing or life or getting through the day or whatever, is there a piece of advice that stuck with you that you would want to share with our listeners? Mm. I feel like I'm going to share like this one because I actually re-encountered it recently. And it's a quote by Octavia Butler. She says, when I write, I create myself, something Mm. like that. Like I write to create myself. And it was such a powerful reminder of like, sometimes our art can feel so outwardly focused, right? Like for you as a director, I'm sure, you know, this feeling of like, is this going to reach audiences? Like what are the box office numbers going to be? And who will be your like investor on this? And on the book side, it's, you know, a lot of talk about the audience and how it's received and everything. And I think reading that quote, it was like, oh, I write to create myself. Like writing is necessary. And I think for you, like directing, being an artist, it's just necessary for you as a person. Yeah. Right? It's like, this is how I'm growing into myself. Sometimes when it can touch someone externally, it's always like this extra beautiful bonus. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if we're not doing it to sort of learn more also about ourselves and write into ourselves to also create ourselves, it's like, you'll just get lost, you know, yeah. and you'll just end up losing, I think, the thread of what made you want to be an artist in the first place. So I think that it's such a powerful idea and yeah, um, it's really beautiful over my desk, you know, yeah, I'm going to, too. I'm taking it. <laughs> it. And it's so succinct. It's not complicated. Yeah. It's just the truth. That's yeah. really cool. I love that. Well, <laughs> Elaine, thank you so much for hanging out with us for this time. And 
please just keep us posted on anything you write in the future. I, I mean, you're, I also have here what white men say in our absence, which is a really oh. profound essay. I just feel like everything, everything you've written, I've had such a strong reaction to. So um, I know you're working on a screenplay version of disorientation right now, but I hope you're also planning to write another novel because it will definitely be on my bookshelf. Thank you, Jennifer. And and hearing you mention these other things I've written and in interviews, it means a lot to me that you just spent time with. It's like we've gotten to know each other, you know, in this way where yeah. <laughs> even before a meeting, which is always so magical and precious. And I'm really grateful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you for listening to The Bookshelf with Jennifer Morrison. Bookshelf is produced by Gerardo Salasco and Amanda D'Souza. Intro and outro by Aaron Gidry.